Just a quick note before we begin. There's a great event coming up on May 16th in Freehold, New Jersey. If you're in the area or plan on visiting, check out the Marine Corps Run for Freedom 5K. This event was organized by Marines and proceeds will go to the Marine Raider Foundation, Semper Fi Fund, and the local Marine Corps League Detachment. It's a great event and I'll be there, so come say hi. If you're not a runner, there will be an after party with $1 drafts. If that isn't a good enough reason, I don't know what is. You can visit MarineCorpsRunForFreedom5K.org for more details. I've included a link in the episode description and will share the event on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to episode 36 of History of the Marine Corps, To the Shores of Tripoli, Part 1. Our last episode discussed the history of the Barbary pirates and covered their origin and events that caused these four states to turn to piracy. We also discussed an embarrassing event involving Bainbridge and the USS George Washington. This week, the United States steps up its game and sends a squadron to the Mediterranean. We'll discuss a cunning plan to overthrow the Tripolitan government, some growing pains with two Commodores, and cover an incident where Bainbridge is humiliated a second time. But these events will set up the Marines for their attack on Tripoli. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. United States just experienced a pretty embarrassing event. Less than 30 years before the George Washington was put in service of the Barbary Pirates, Americans fought a full-out war against tyranny. This revolution started a new chapter in human history and was a giant step for the human rights movement. Many people alive during the American Revolution were around to hear about Bainbridge and the disrespectful action of Algiers. The United States just won a war based on paying taxes to an empire that did not represent the best interests of their citizens. But now they are paying tribute to a country whose only concern was money. Americans realized that some type of action was needed. The Barbary pirates taught the United States a valuable lesson, and many policies were revised because of this event. The story of Bainbridge will bring up strong feelings for most. Major Edwin McClellan, the officer in charge of the Marine Corps Historical Section in the 1930s, had an interesting take on it. He said, quote, At first, we find that the only Americans who felt the sting of dishonor were those who had to suffer the degradation of personally laying the tribute at the feet of the barbarians. Our Navy and Marine Corps experienced long ignominy. Not only did they carry the tribute, but they suffered the insults and mockery of the Corsairs, who neglected no opportunity of impressing them with the idea that they were inferiors. McClellan goes on to say, It is to their credit that withstanding all this and their abhorrence of the duty, they performed it efficiently. Their duty was to carry out a policy, not to establish one. Unquote. Just a quick side note on Major McClellan. His contributions documenting Marine Corps history is phenomenal. If you're interested, look him up, read some of his work. 
Thomas Jefferson just replaced John Adams as the President of the United States. During his presidential campaign, he ran with the promise of stopping the Barbary pirates. Just three months after the Quasi-War ended with France, the war with Tripoli began. The Bashaw of Tripoli declared war on the United States on May 14, 1801. In a public display of his decision, he cut down the flagpole in front of the American consulate. The news would take a while to reach the United States, but Jefferson seemed to have anticipated this move. The president ordered Commodore Richard Dale to send a squadron to the Mediterranean, hoping the display of force would intimidate the Barbary states into keeping the treaty. Dale was a well-respected officer. He fought in the American Revolution and made a name for himself as a young second lieutenant by leading a boarding party against the HMS Serapis. In a Hollywood-like move, Dale climbed the rigging of the Bonhomme Richard and swung from a rope onto the deck of the enemy ship where he fought the British in hand-to-hand combat. The original intent of this squadron was to intimidate the Barbary states, but the United States still planned on paying tribute to Algiers. Dale was captain of the frigate President, and he carried $30,000 he planned to pay the day for another year of peace. Other ships in the squadron carried timber and other supplies as gifts. President Jefferson even included a personal contribution of $10,000 to the Bay of Tripoli if they were peaceful to the American squadron. Dale was also instructed to anticipate a declaration of war. He was ordered not to allow any person of power to board his ships or examine his men. He was supposed to be respectful of the leaders, but not to repeat the actions of Bainbridge and dishonor the United States. He was also instructed not to request a salute when they entered the area. At least one of the treaties we signed stated that for every shot fired in a salute, the United States would have to reimburse them one barrel of gunpowder. The squadron was expected to be in the area for about a year. Three of the frigates contained about 50 Marines per ship. The schooner Enterprise carried 30 Marines. On the frigate President, 1st Lieutenant Newton Keene and 2nd Lieutenant William Osborne commanded the Marines. The Philadelphia had Marine 1st Lieutenant John Fenwick and 2nd Lieutenant John Johnson. The Essex carried Marines 2nd Lieutenant Philip Alexander and Thomas Hooper. And the Enterprise had 2nd Lieutenant Enoch Lane. While sailors in the Marines sailed east, the United States economy was going through some growing pains. There was a lack of guidance from the government, and very few banking regulations existed. This resulted in depressions and volatility in the market. As a result, some cutbacks were needed, and on July 8, 1801, the Commandant of the Marine Corps was instructed by Jefferson to reduce the enlisted strength of the Corps to 400. This was a controversial decision. Jefferson didn't request permission from Congress. He just made the decision himself. As we discussed in previous episodes, the Acts of 1798, 1799, and 1800 steadily increased the authorized strength of the Marine Corps to 41 officers and 1,044 enlisted. But the wording in the Act of 1798 authorized the President to reduce the Corps whenever Congress decreased the Navy. So at the end of the day, Jefferson's decision was found to be a legal one. But despite the controversy of Jefferson's resolution, 
I'm not sure how much of an impact it had on the strength of the Marine Corps at the time. Marines had a hard time finding new recruits, dating back to the American Revolution. On June 30th, a little over a week before the Commandant received the order to reduce his forces, the Marine Corps' active strength was only 357, which included 38 officers and 319 enlisted. In January 1802, with the reduction in force, the Secretary of the Navy reported that the annual expense of the Marine Corps was $99,109.23. But regardless of the cost, the Commandant faced a new problem. Half of his forces were now sailing to the Mediterranean. On August 1st, the Enterprise got into an engagement with a ship from Tripoli, appropriately named the Tripoli. It was a 14-gun ship with a crew of about 80 men. They fought for two hours. The Tripolitan ship struck her colors twice, signaling surrender, but after each time she started to fire again. It was a cowardly move, but fortunately, the Americans' persistence and accuracy caused the captain of the Tripolitan ship to realize defeat was inevitable. His ship was severely damaged, and he finally lowered his colors and personally threw the flag into the ocean. Once again, the Marines were instrumental in stopping the Barbary pirates board the Enterprise. The National Intelligencer, a newspaper in Washington, D.C., reported the Marines were eminently useful. The United States Navy and Marine Corps did not lose one man during this battle. However, the Tripolitans experienced large casualties. According to the official dispatch from Sterrett to Dale, the Tripoli had 30 men killed and 30 men wounded. The United States did not officially declare war against Tripoli, which meant the ship could not be taken as a prize. So Sterrett ordered the enemy ship dismantled and sent back to Tripoli. As a punishment for his failure, the Tripoli commander was mounted on a donkey and marched through the streets as an object of public scorn. To add to his punishment, he received 500 bastinados, or caning to the soles of his feet. This victory was the first major win for the Americans. The country celebrated the news, and President Jefferson even writes a congratulatory letter to Andrew Sterrett, who commanded the Enterprise. Congress joined in on the celebration and gave Sterrett a sword, and everyone else on the ship was given an extra month's pay. We took a look at a young 21-year-old Sterrett during episode 32, The United States Sail to the West Indies. During the battle between the Constellation and a French ship, one of the American crew members was overwhelmed with panic and ran from his gun. Sterrett was the officer who drew his sword, chased him down, and killed him. He later told a friend, quote, I was obliged to run through the body with my sword and so put an end to a coward, unquote. Just as Marines celebrate the success of our fellow brothers and sisters' achievements today, the same happened in the 1800s. Marines were ecstatic to hear about the victory at sea. Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon wrote the Commandant and said that he had, quote, Noticed with pleasure the credit which the Marines did themselves under the command of Lieutenant Lane as they have given the barbarians some hot lead as a tribute, unquote. I love that line. President Jefferson took advantage of the support, and in his first annual message to Congress, 
requested additional powers for the president. But despite the success of the enterprise and the celebration happening in the United States, American policy regarding this war was confusing and inconsistent. James Madison, Secretary of State at the time, sent letters to each of the American consuls in the Barbary states. His letter stated that this was a time to use force against the Corsairs. However, at the exact same time his message was sent, the George Washington and the Boston made their way back to Algiers with more presents in tow. It wouldn't be until February 6, 1802, that Congress authorized President Jefferson to use the Navy as he saw fit to protect American commerce. However, Congress never officially declared war on Tripoli. This legislation also authorized naval commanders to subdue, seize, and make prize of all vessels, goods, and effects belonging to the day of Tripoli, or to his subjects. The tides were starting to change for Tripoli. Even though Dale had a relatively small force, he was having a big impact against the Barbary pirates. He was stopping attacks against American merchantmen while in the Mediterranean, and Marines on board the Philadelphia, Essex, and Boston participated in multiple battles against Tripolitan gunboats. However, Dale had one weakness. He didn't have boats that could safely traverse the shallow waters of the coastline. American merchants were still at risk in these shallow waters, and some were taken prisoner. Dale was irritated with the lack of gunboats, so he sailed back to Virginia on April 14, 1802, to speak with leadership. He left the rest of his squadron in the Mediterranean to continue the good fight. But Dale would never return. When he arrived in Virginia, Dale argued that he deserved a promotion to admiral. But there was a problem with this request. The rank of admiral did not exist in the United States, and Congress wasn't going to create a new rank just for him. So frustrated, Dale resigned his commission. Around this time, President Jefferson was devising a plan to win this war without the need for an extensive naval force. There are times when sending in hundreds of ships and thousands of men is the appropriate response, but it's not always the answer. Jefferson understood the history of the Barbary states, and this tactic wouldn't address the root cause of the problem, their leadership. Americans could have sent thousands of men to destroy the Tripolitan military, but just as we've seen before, they would reestablish a new government and be back at their old games again. If successful, Jefferson's plan would stop the Barbary states from attacking American merchantmen and also change the regime. The idea was put into Jefferson's head by William Eaton, the U.S. consul at the time. He considered a solution that didn't involve a military force. The United States decided to turn their attention to Hamet Koromanli, the rightful heir of Tripoli, who was exiled by his brother Yusuf. If killing his brother wasn't bad enough, the way he did it was cowardly as well. Yusuf invited his brother to his mother's home. Their mother insisted that both men come unarmed. And they did, kind of. Yusuf swore loyalty to his brother. He then turned to one of his assistants, was handed a pistol, and shot his older brother dead, wounding his mother in the process. The current leader of Tripoli, Bashar Yusuf, did not have a legal right to run the country, 
he gained his power by murdering his older brother, banishing Hamet, and keeping Hamet's wife and four children as prisoner. Ian met with Hamet in Tunis and shared a meal of lamb and vegetables. They discussed the situation and came up with some options to deal with Yusuf. They planned a revolution. No longer would the fight only be a naval battle. Eaton would lead an army on land, overthrow Yusuf, and restore Hamet to his rightful position. Eaton had extensive knowledge of the Barbary coast and mastered several Arabic dialects after years of living in the area. He understood the landscape and was confident that the current residents would support the revolution. While planning for this move, Jefferson authorized additional naval forces to head to the Mediterranean. The USS Chesapeake, with Marine Captain Daniel Carmick and Lieutenant Samuel Baldwin, headed out first, followed shortly by the Constellation with Captain James McKnight and Lieutenant Edward Hall. The Adams sailed out of Norfolk, with 2nd Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon in charge of the Marines. With Dale out of the picture, Jefferson appointed Captain Richard Valentine Morris to take his place. There's some confusion on why Jefferson selected Morris for this role. Truxton was an option at this time, and as we covered in previous episodes, he was successful as a captain, although he could be a little dramatic. Captain Preble was another consideration as well. But Jefferson decided to go with Morris. Some think this decision was based on Morris's class rather than his experience as a naval commander. Morris had limited experience at sea, but he did have political influence. His father was Lewis Morris, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. His uncle helped finance the American Revolution, and he was part of the Constitutional Convention. And his brother was a representative from Vermont, who withheld his vote in the congressional ballot between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, which helped Jefferson win a deadlock Vermont. We'll probably never know why President Jefferson selected Morris, but it would turn out to be a mistake. From the very beginning, Morris showed poor judgment. When he took command of the Chesapeake, he brought his wife, son, and nursemaid with him. There isn't a lot of evidence that discusses what the crew on board the ship thought of Morris's decision, but it's pretty clear that they didn't like his wife. One of the midshipmen stated, quote, Her person isn't beautiful, or even handsome, but she looks very well in a veil, unquote. It was clear from the beginning that Morris's dedication wasn't to his crew or to the mission. Priorities were to his wife, and spent his time socializing with British royal officers. On his voyage to the Mediterranean, he made frequent stops at multiple ports along the way. While his crew was waiting in port, swabbing decks and maintaining the ship, Morris would attend random banquets with foreign aristocrats. He had no sense of urgency. And Morris's new squadron would arrive in Gibraltar on April 28, 1802, a full month before the new commander would even show up. Morris was responsible for blocking Tripolitan ships and protecting American commerce vessels. He would fail at this almost immediately. Many gunboats were able to pass through the blockade. On June 17th, while Morris and his family were enjoying the life of luxury in Gibraltar, three more ships passed the blockade, but this time 
they were able to capture an American vessel, the Franklin. The crew on board was forced to surrender, and they were placed in chains. The Corsairs sold the ships and her cargo. The prisoners were taken back to Tripoli. America still lacked gunboats that could traverse the shallow waters, and the Tripolitans used this to their advantage. The pirates sailed past the frigate Constellation with the American prisoners on board, and sailing the United States flag upside down as a sign of disrespect for the onlooking Americans. Captain Murray of the Constellation fired a few shots at the enemy, but this was mostly out of desperation. The Corsairs were more than a half mile away, and the shots fell short. When the enemy arrived in Tripoli, they were welcomed with cannon fire, and the American prisoners were marched through the streets. Murray was furious and humiliated by this act, and he wrote to Morris, stating that a blockade was not possible without ships that could maneuver through the shallow waters. But instead of listening to Murray, Morris decided to change tactics. He got rid of the blockade, and American warships would now convoy with merchant ships. This wasn't the best start for the new Commodore, but he was given a second chance. About five days after this event, a similar situation would play out. It would involve the Constellation again, but this time she would give chase, and end up killing about a dozen men, which includes one of the Bashaw's favorite generals, but most of the Tripolitans would get away. On the same day, Morocco joined Tripoli and declared war on the United States as well. Throughout all of these events, Morris and his family were enjoying the life of luxury on land. Captain of the USS Adams had to track Morris down and give him his new orders. DC was aware of his behavior, and this time, the orders were pretty cut and dry. He was to take his entire fleet to Tripoli. They were to attempt peace while displaying force. Again, he showed no sense of urgency. Morris left a month later and made multiple stops along the way. He wouldn't arrive until February 1803. Morris would continue to fail at his job, risking lives and even offering Barbary States large amounts of money as a tribute. When the word of his behavior reached the States, public and congressional reaction was brutal. His conduct was condemned, and many recommendations were charging Morris with incompetence. On September 11th, he was finally